Hello there, and welcome to AIPT Comics Podcast, episode 44. We are getting closer to the end of the year, which means we are getting closer to 2020, which means we're getting closer to lots of new information about books coming out soon. My name is David Brooke. I am your co-host. I am here with somebody else. I can't remember his name. What is your name? Joe Hill. Joe Hill. Oh, wait, no. he's on later. Sorry. Uh, out of order. I got confused. Yeah. Hello, this is Forrest with two R's. I'm very excited to be here. Forrest, we have Joe Hill on later. We both got to interview him earlier this week about his upcoming book, Basketful of Heads, coming out October 30th, as well as his entire line of Hill House comics under the DC Black Label. A lot of fun conversation, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? Yeah, very kind, very talkative guy um, with some amazing pitches for all of the books in the line. Um, yes. And I would I would totally recommend that people check that out because he sold me on some of those books with just the one sentence he got out about them. Oh, for sure, yeah. He also talked about the, uh, the King multiverse that's sort of been weaved into some of his works and the possibility of this new comic line weaving into that as well, which is pretty cool. And uh, we talk about horror comics too and, and horror in general. So yeah, stick around for that. That's later in the show. But this is the comics podcast where we recap the news of the week. We talk about the best books of last week and we look ahead to October 30th and the books coming out that week as well as the best covers coming out that week. But to start... We talk about the news. We want to get you in the know. So you didn't have to check the news. We did it for you. I read a lot of garbage websites for you. We definitely sift through some news that may not be as important as uh, as some might think. One of the biggest things that came out this week was London MCM Comic Con. A con I did not know existed. Yeah. Uh, can we zoom in on that real quick? Did it sure. exist before this? No idea. I, I don't even Google know. It. I definitely did not recognize the name. Well, yeah. So I didn't even know this existed until Marvel PR reached out and said, "Hey, do you want to post these Wolverine number one pages?" They were revealed at London MCM, mm. and I was like, "Sure, let's let's do it." And then throughout the day on Friday, uh, just constant Marvel news came out. Uh, big news at that. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few folks at this. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's held twice a year. Huh, that's interesting. Usually on the last weekend of May and October. May 2002. Wow. Yeah. I've never seen news like this come out of anywhere besides New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con. One of the biggest things was giant-sized X-Men being announced, which is going to be a ongoing series written by Jonathan Hickman. Mm-hmm. Every issue has a different artist. Russell Dodderman is the first artist. Yes. And the, f- the first issue is a Jean Grey Emma Frost issue, which is going to get X-Men fans really excited. Yeah, and they were. Twitter blew up. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love the idea of highlighting an artist, having Hickman work with a different artist every month. I I do too. I loved the concept behind bringing Giant Size X-Men back, but having this rotating cast rather than eliminating it to the X-Men cast that's over in Hickman's other ongoing right now. And I also love the idea that it's such a quick, fast, easy way to build the world that they need to build out of Hox and Pox. Mm -hmm. Because you can just kind of... You don't have to spend a really long time with setup or anything like that. I mean, they've kind of already done that with that series, but you can just kind of immediately get into a character's day-to-day or feelings or something like that. Yeah, it looks like it's scratching the itch of sort of like, because Hox and Pox was lacking a little bit in like character development across. Sure, sure. So it's his way of like kind of probing those characters, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, and and you learn the most about the world through the eyes of a character, right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So I, it, you know, I think he does a really good job of writing Apocalypse, Magneto, Xavier, all of these big players differently, but not necessarily. We haven't necessarily seen what it's like for the people with their boots on the ground yet, right? And obviously, Jean and Emma aren't necessarily that for the first issue, but it opens the possibility that that will be what they're looking at—the world through the eyes of less main stage characters. Sure. Yeah, which is cool. I'm sure there are, I mean, with any fandom, there are fans of, of specific characters. So I'm sure a lot of fans will I will feel like they're getting what they want, you know? I don't think that there are a lot of big Jean Grey or Emma Frost fans, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Yeah, I haven't seen much about that anywhere. Not definitely really not just on Twitter. Zero. Yeah. Other news was the Wolverine number one pages. Really cool pages. I, I highly recommend you check out aptcomics.com and check out these pages. They reveal a moment between Wolverine and Jean, which is going to get fans excited as well as Kate pride and Wolverine kind of Mm. interacting. There's a lot going on in these pages. I, I think Adam Kubert is doing some of his best work. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to like the tone and the look of Wolverine books, but not necessarily the um, narrative. Mm-hmm. Does that feel fair? Yeah. Like I'm never really super bought into whatever Logan is doing. Yeah, he's but, a man with um, a mission, and that's about it. Yeah, it's right. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes that mission is just to get beer or something. You know, I, I'm <laughs> never that super bought into it, but it does look really good. It looks really refined. It looks like they have a specific vision for it, so that's cool. And then also revealed X Men Fantastic Four, written by Chip Zdarsky. Yes. We already knew Franklin Richards was going to be involved somehow because Hickman on X Men Monday, I think, mentioned this, right? And. Franklin Richards was listed as an Omega level mutant in Hawks yes. and Pox. Yeah. Right, right, right. So and, and this it, is pretty I mean, cool. Was it the first issue of Hawks that had the Fantastic Four? It was. Yep. So I, it totally fits. So that's exciting. They, I don't I don't think they said when it's coming out, like which month. You yet, know what, they? dude? Just 2020. As long as they're not doing Fantastic Four versus X-Men again, they can release yeah. it whenever they want. Yep. And I trust, uh, <laughs> I trust Chep Zdarsky. Oh, yeah. He does a great job. Yeah. I mean, look at Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also revealed, Dr. Afra is relaunching in 2020, yes. which is pretty cool. People were a little nervous because it was getting a final issue in December, but it will be back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be uh, drawn by America Cresta with uh, writing by Alyssa Wong. Cool. Very good. Moving on from there... In DC news, Jorge Jimenez is exiting Justice League with Scott Snyder. We talked about this briefly last week mm-hmm. because I was a little surprised. Snyder said that he had a 50-issue run in him. Apparently, he, he has 39. But Jimenez uh, hyped that there are bigger things coming. What could they be? Is it a giant banana? <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of... I don't really feel confident in, in any shot I could call for this. Uh-huh. But I do remember Snyder saying that he really wanted to write Swamp Thing. Yep. And there's not a Swamp Thing book right now. So that's true. Yeah. And there was um, some big stuff that happened earlier this year in Justice League Dark, um, which Snyder's obviously involved in writing alongside Tinian for Justice League and stuff that really set up a new, a new, interesting, good angle for Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. So I hope it's that. Forrest's money is on Swamp Thing. Note it. That, that, sw- that Tom King Swamp Thing book in Walmart did really well, too. Oh, yeah. That so, was that was a yeah, good one. That's too. what my money's on. In other DC news, Tom King and Clay Mann are delaying Batman <laughs> Catwoman number one. Uh-oh, but why, Tom? Because he has to work on something even better. <laughs> but why is it delayed for us? I couldn't tell you because Tom King did not explain it so good. <laughs> yeah. He took to Twitter to explain the delay, and yeah, it was a multiple tweet thread that basically boiled down to, we want to make the book really good, so we're taking more time. Yeah. 
um, with parallels to like Frank Miller's Dark Knight and stuff like that, which I felt was a little pat yourself on the back. That was a bit shocking, yeah. Yeah, and then there was a, another dig in there where he basically said his scripts were in, or the first issue's scripts were all in, but that the art wasn't. Yeah, I was throwing the artist under the bus a little bit. Yeah, I just kind of felt like it was a weird thing. I I was telling you before we started recording that I, I would have taken this in stride if it had been over an X-Men or something with the backing of an editor or the word of an editor like jordan d white is really good at explaining what's going on with the x-men line right and i was Mm -hmm. willing to take that step with hickman which i was admittedly nervous about before those books started because jordan believed in it so hard um and said no we have a cohesive vision for the line and for the characters and stuff but king is just kind of limited to doing his own pr Mm -hmm. i don't have a strong connection to who the batman editors are or who the creatives are or anything and i find that very strange for a book that is i think like 80 percent of dc's sales right it's weird and it makes me not have a lot of faith in what they're doing or makes me feel like they don't have faith in what they're doing it makes you wonder about vision, right? I feel like with many DC books, they seem to be going one way and then they change course because the vision changed course. Right. Presumably by the editors or, you know, Dan Didio decided to change something or Jim Lee. I can see what you're saying. You lose faith. You lose, yeah, a cohesive vision, like you said. That's a bit of a bummer, I'm sure, for some. Uh, although if it's going to make better comics, then I, take all the time you I need. I want the comic <laughs> to be good. I want them to take as much time as they need. I don't want them to be experiencing crunch or anything like that. I would rather have a good book eventually than an okay book now. Right. But it's weird. I don't know. So the uh, Mike Waringo Comic Book Industry Awards came out last Saturday. Last, last Saturday, actually. And uh, there's some uh, some big names on this uh, on these winner lists here. Mm-hmm. We've got Brian K. Vaughn winning Best Writer, Fiona Staples winning Best Inker, and Best Cover Artist. Yes, Anything else pop out at you? Um, There was a tie for best series with Black Hammer, Age of Doom from Dark Horse and the Immortal Hulk from Marvel. Mm. Those were my called shots for, um, I almost said the Etsy's. (laughs) The Eisner's. The Eisner's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tamara Bonvillain won for Best Colors, who didn't win at the Eisner's, but did win here. Yeah, great. So yeah, it's, uh, and also Sean Phillips. There's some big names. Terry Moore won Best Cartoonist. Yeah, some people were taking home awards last week. Yeah, very, very deserved, I thought the whole list was. I didn't, I didn't want to stick my nose up at anything there. Sure. And congrats to them. Yes, indeed. So solicitations came out for quite a few publishers, uh, Marvel Comics included. There was some interesting things in there that they had yet not yet hyped yet, because now Marvel is very good at slowly leaking all the solicitation information out before the actual full list comes out. Uh, a couple of things that caught my eye, which I actually wrote about on amptcomics.com if you check out the article. Mm-hmm. In particular, <laughs> Immortal Hulk and Spider-Man are joining forces <sighs> spiritually. <laughs> so it's Tom Taylor, though. It's Tom Taylor yeah. writing. But it, it makes it sound like the Hulk is a host, like it's a symbiote almost. Mm-hmm. Like, And this is what I said in my article. How does the Hulk become like get on like how does it join forces with like how does it get inside peter parker i'm gonna guess that you don't like this i don't care for it at all but jorge molina's drawing i like the creator <laughs> so much i don't know why they bit on this it's a one shot i'm sure right? it is it is the same yeah. as the absolute carnage tie-in was but i felt that that was weird too i saw a comics critic on twitter and i'm very sorry i can't remember who it was right now say that marvel 
is starting to see Immortal Hulk as a brand to be built upon and expanded rather than a story to be told. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that hits the nail on the head, and I find it very similarly disappointing. I bet this is like a feeler. They're going to see how the sales do, and then they're going to go hog wild if yeah. it does well. Yep. <laughs> Isn't that the way that it is? Uh, basically. We've been reviewing comics for a long time. Isn't that the way that it is? I mean, it's it's really that way with every industry. Right. Other news, J. Jonah Jameson's going to become a podcaster like us. Do you think it's because of this show? Yes. And, and also, uh, Spider-Man will be, I think, using science. Well, I know that. He will be using science to split himself up so he can stop more crimes in New York. Uh, what? That went well last time. Yeah. Is he going to, like, clone himself? I, uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Spider-Man doesn't get cloned. That wouldn't be good, would it? Yeah. I, I'm really stoked about the Daily Bugle book. Yeah, that would I, be cool. I, I, The same thing I was saying about the ability that you have to build a world through giant size X-Men. That I think a Daily Bugle book is also great for that. Um, and Jimmy Olsen is doing well over at DC with that, too. Mm, maybe that's why they're putting it out. Probably. The Daily Planet uh, also, book. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Brock's son, Dylan, and Harry Osborne's son, yeah. are getting their own book. Um, oh, yeah. Zach Thompson. Zach Thompson. Yeah, that's why I'm excited mm. for it. Yeah. I, I saw someone on Twitter, because we, we actually got the exclusive before the solicits went out, and they were like, great. Absolute carnage is spoiled. I guess they assumed both kids would die by the end. Oh yeah, you know the the famous Mar- the famous Marvel trope where they kill children. <laughs> I know it was. I was a little surprised that they were so angry. Although the cover seems to suggest both kids have powers. Yes. Of some sort. Uh, well, I mean Eddie very obviously does. Eddie's son very obviously yeah. does. Um, yeah, yeah. And Normie does too. I saw someone reply to Zach Thompson's tweet and say, "This sounds like symbiote super sons." Mm-hmm. And Zach said, "Sounds good to me." And I also to me, I would be a one hundred percent in on that book. I actually said that when I in my write up, I, I said uh, this is their super sons. Mm, very astute. Maybe I am astute. I don't know. I hope so. I'm I'm, I'm talking about comics every week. Uh, for you should an go hour. to the doctor to get checked. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Dawn of X books. There's a lot of little tidbits. I highly recommend you check yep. out all of the solicits if you want spoilers. Um, don't don't spoil it. There is a to. mystique cover and solicit that is an absolute banger if you're invested in that angle i don't want to spoil it but it looks awesome yeah all the books look like they're 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 gonna be strong strong with their storytelling and character arcs and whatnot yeah just just by the solicits alone except for whatever's happening with captain marvel what do you mean captain marvel is also there in the x-men books in uh the solicits do you have anything to say about that it it looks (laughs) bad (laughs) i have a lot of faith in kelly thompson and i have liked captain marvel yeah. a lot yeah but this weird like sudden heel turn is gonna kill an avenger uh, thing is needlessly dark weird i don't care for it mm. well it'll probably change her in some way she'll be like a phoenix maybe she'll become oh, phoenix boy. <laughs> i bet you're not far off Maybe um, i do think um what they're doing with the conan line is still really impressive and exciting um despite what people might have to say about that i know people don't really like conan being in other books but um saladin ahmed is writing a conan going to las vegas tempted by mephisto book yeah and yep. that, that seems awesome i love the idea of him teaming up with moon knight yes yeah it kind of makes sense. They're they're picking the. I mean, I don't know about Punisher, but they're picking the right characters for him to fight. Well, with. and the same thing. <laughs> I don't know about twenty ninety nine, right? But yes, I, you got. Yeah, I I feel very ad hoc about Conan books. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna pick and choose the ones I like or the ones I think are neat, and other ones I'm kind of like, all right, 
jumping the shark right. a little bit there. Marvel is doing this new thing where they're like telling us about books f- even further beyond yeah. the solicitations for some reason. Yeah. And uh, this week it was revealed that Spider-Man Noir is coming out in twenty 20- March 2020. <laughs> it's a five issue limited series uh, by Margaret Stoll and Juan Ferreira. I mean, I love I love that combo. That's going to be great. I mean, Ferreira is mm-hmm. fantastic. It's just I'm very doesn't it take the buzz off the books that are coming out in January and February when they're talking about March already? Doesn't it completely undo events that they had earlier in the year, like Spider Geddon, where Spider Man Noir died? <laughs> right, well, right. Uh, it's gonna be the how he came back to life uh, or whatever. Sure, sure. <laughs> we talk about how comics are a rotating door all the time, right? Right. But I think right. the problem with putting those solicits that far out, like you were saying, mm-hmm. is that it makes that very obvious. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can kind of see a story beat happening and then the downfall of a character, the death of a character, whatever, and yeah. then see that they're going to be back to the status quo later in the year when they solicit stuff that far out or make covers that are very spoilery that far out. It makes it a little bit more obvious. It gives you this kind of weird top-down view that really only industry personnel and maybe reviewers should have. Right. But as a, in terms of a reading experience, it's kind of disappointing. I mean... To, I think solicitations were always intended for comic shops to be making their orders. Uh, that's the idea, but right? Yeah. It's definitely become bigger as you know social media has grown. I think social media has really made it bigger because folks can instantaneously talk about that book that's coming out in two months mm-hmm. or three mm-hmm. months. And 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 just you know you know I, I'm sure it's increasing their social media engagement. I I hope that it is serving the stores well rather mm-hmm. than it's serving the publisher well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, it's also increasing social media engagement. Gary Frank's Twitter handle tweeted on Friday (laughs) that he is finishing the last page of the Doomsday Clock series, the 12 issue series that's taken four. Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry, two years, not 400 years uh, to produce. (laughs) He tweeted out last page of Doomsday Clock going into the scanner. I can't believe it. Do I watch Watchmen, presumably the HBO show now, or do I need a complete change of scenery? I would say scenery change, please, Gary Frank. Yeah, but uh, it's exciting. I mean, if he's if he's scanning the last page, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna do some quick math here. He's like on the he's like right on the deadline there because it's coming out in December. I'm crunching the numbers now. Oh, good. The twelfth issue of Doomsday Clock, per this recursive algorithm, will be out on October 59th. Uh-oh. 2031 uh-huh. wow we increased the days because of the sun dying yeah right yeah <laughs> that's my guess they're gonna beam know. it directly into our heads doomsday clock number 12 comes out december 18th 2019 and that is the end of the news in our next segment top books of last week we talk about our two favorite books out last week and because we have joe hill on later in the show we are going to reduce our second pick to a one sentence review mm-hmm but before we get there, comicbookroundup.com. It's something we talk about every week because this is the Rotten Tomatoes of comics. And we pick the top critic pick and the top fan pick just so that we can spread our wings a little bit <laughs> and talk a little bit more about the best of last week. The top fan pick was Batman Curse of the White Knight, number four, with a 9.2. Yep. And the top critic pick was Martian Manhunter, number nine, with a 9.4. I am sure you're not surprised a by that one. book that is so good that I have banned myself from picking it when it comes out anymore. <laughs> <laughs> have you read it yes it's Number fantastic nine? it's amazing nice it's amazing nice. meditation on grief 
Um, I read the first. I'm going to just hold off till the trade. Yeah. I, I just don't have the time. Yeah, I really hope that they do something special with this trade because uh, the art is amazing. The story is amazing. I would love to see this team tackling other characters. I, I, I it's Orlando and Rosmo feel similar to what they did with Vision and stuff like that. I actually reviewed uh, Curse of the White Knight number four for aptcomics.com. If you go check that out, I didn't give it the highest score. It felt like a very much a table setting issue. This I actually saw a pretty big discrepancy between the fan reviews and the critic reviews of yeah. this one. I think that the and fan the, reviews the averaged out like to it. a nine point nine point two, and the critics gave mm-hmm. it a eight point seven. I think so. Pretty big Which difference. Is still pretty there. good. Oh, sure. It's just, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a Bat character that, like, wants to murder, and it's like, okay, I guess we're going to murder now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Force, what is your second pick of the week? My, my second pick of the week is um, Amazing Spider-Man Full Circle. This is a kind of experimental book that they did for Spider-Man this week, um, and actually for, I think it's the first time something like this has ever been done, where it's a Spider-Man story told round-robin style. It has Jonathan Hickman, Chip Zdarsky, Nick Spencer, Mark Bagley, um, Chris Bacalo, a bunch of other creators who are writing a short story. I think none of them are longer than 10 pages. And then the next creative team is picking up the story and art from there and so on and so forth. Um, it's a really fantastic idea i like seeing spidey's voice through all of these different filters and i think it speaks to how malleable and interesting the character is in a variety of settings and paces um and then seeing that it's an all-star art team i i liked the idea behind it more than i liked the execution maybe but um jonathan hickman tweeted out that they are going to probably do something like this every year hopefully um i'd love to see them do it with other characters as well Force, that is the worst one sentence it is I've bad. ever heard. <laughs> Spider-Man good. I could always talk about Spidey. You know that. Why'd you let me? I do, I do, I do, I do. I reviewed that uh, issue for aptcomics.com as well. I liked it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. it's. I can't wait to see them try it with different characters. Yeah, that's, that was my big takeaway. Uh, my number two pick was King Thor number two by Jason Aaron and Rasad, Asad Ribic. This is their big finish to their Thor epic run that started back in 2012. All in all, the book feels incredibly important, even though it takes place in the far future and there isn't a single Marvel hero outside Thor to be seen. That's my review. Uh, somehow it's, it's, it's feeling very important, even though usually a story that's set in the future doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say the same thing about Immortal Hulk this week. Mm, oh my God, that was um, wild. Great, great time for writers to be flexing like that. Mm, yeah, science fiction is, is seeing a lot, and, and horror is seeing a lot uh, mm-hmm. of... Uh, mm-hmm of great examples with superheroes in particular lately absolutely what is your number one pick my number one pick of the week which i actually probably can sum up in one sentence is <laughs> marauders number one written by gary dugan with art by mateo lolly um with apologies to cena grace this is a great team it's a great hook there's a very very interesting reveal um related to kate pride early on that i think sets up an interesting kind of sinister angle for the world at large um and no not mr sinister um the art and the writing complement each other very well it's a very funny sincere and um somewhat devastating book that balances humor and horror really really well nice and gives the x-men especially the marauders a good um call to action yeah it has a very strong identity and yet it's still tied to krakoa and what hickman has done Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm I think you know if they if they keep coming out this good, these uh, these new Don of X books, I 
I mean, people are going to have to start giving Marvel their entire paycheck. Every I two mean, weeks. am I? I kind of am. <laughs> the two the two lines that I like at Marvel right now are their biggest. I buy all the X-Men books and I buy all the Spider-Man books. As we said earlier in the show, Giant Size X-Men is yet another ongoing that's going to probably tie into all of this. Yep. <laughs> Time to start printing money. What was your number one pick? My number one pick is Amazing Mary Jane, number one, by Leah Williams and Carlos Gomez. I had no expectations for this book because I didn't really know what it was about. I knew Mary Jane was going to be in Hollywood or whatever, trying to shoot a movie that was written by Mysterio. (laughs) I love the hook of it. And uh, it's strong. It has a very strong identity, I felt. Uh, Not only is Mary Jane really well written, but she kind of takes charge of the situation and you know, the basic premise I just laid out a second ago would sound as if she would become a victim or, you know, part of Mysterio's trap. And I'm totally spoiling it right now. But like, she takes control of of the situation. And I'm excited to see where it goes because of how it ends. And it was and it also has a very cute moment with Peter and Mary Jane where they dance together over the phone. Mm, I did love that. That felt very true to character. Yeah, to me. yeah. exactly. And that romantic element that love is there. So it's, you know, I was, I was wondering if they'd have any Spider-Man in it. Cause you know, maybe just give it all to Mary Jane, but they, they did have him in there. He, he's not that big of a part of it, but it's nice to see mm-hmm. that they didn't forget that that is a big part of Mary mm-hmm. Jane, that they're, you know, they're these two lovers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's my number one pick. I, I think Leah Williams is like quickly becoming my favorite writer with, with Gwenpool. And now this like I'm really loving every script that she's writing. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. I really liked the um, Age of X-Man book that she did, Mm -hmm. um, Extremis. But this was a little exposition heavy for me. And it felt like it was almost structured to do the opposite of what it thought it was doing or what it was saying. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked the writing, but it didn't necessarily... Click with you? Yeah, it didn't cohere into something that I felt was making the point it wanted to make. Hmm. Maybe number two will totally sell you. I did get a sense that it's going to get better from here. Yeah. (laughs) You know what else is going to get better from here next week, as there will be a whole slew of new comic books out next week. And in our next segment, Top Books for Next Week, we talk about the number one book we're looking forward to next week. I can't wait for Joker Killer Smile number one by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Andrea Sorrentino. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned last week, I totally binged uh, Gideon Falls. So I am on board for whatever they have for a more of a superhero-y book in that realm anyway. And the fact that they're taking Joker and mixing media because there is... um, kids books pages in there uh, which they revealed at san diego comic-con a little bit i think they showed them on the screen even yeah it's uh it's an exciting time to be a joker fan i guess huh (laughs) yeah what was your uh what's your most uh, top book of next week my top book of next week is excalibur number one written by teeny howard with art by marcus toe do we really have to enumerate on why it's one of the dawn of x books they're all good (laughs) as we've said teeny is a fantastic writer she did some amazing stuff with thanos that i didn't expect she did similarly some amazing stuff with deathhead that i didn't expect um it looks like a great direction for the book and i love the idea of the x-men um coming up against real kind of like old world magic Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. i find that very compelling so i'm really 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 excited for it i can't wait to see what she's doing with apocalypse yeah yeah, there's basically, um, we have an exclusive preview of that over at AIPTcomics.com, and there's a panel where Apocalypse basically <laughs> says, all the mutants are fucking tonight. <laughs> okay, I need to read that a little closer. Yeah. I think I missed that. He says, the mutants made <laughs> from the unions tonight will live in oh. the best of worlds or something. Wow, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's kind of a sex priest thing going on. So to just carry forward with uh, next week, judging by the cover junior, sorry, judging by the cover junior is our next segment where we talk about our favorite cover art for books coming out October 30th. What is your favorite cover art for us? My favorite cover art is Silver Surfer Black number five. Um, this is, I think it's an alternative color cover by Cian Tormi. Um, it has Silver Surfer. He's holding his board and um, he looks very shocked or even malaise, very sad. Um, and reflected in it is Galactus, who appears to be melting down or, um, nah, I think that's probably the best, overheating. Or on maybe, fire. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's a very evocative, expressive cover with some great color balance some great motion and a lot of really really great emotion like you can really feel what surfers feeling there um it's probably not necessarily in sync with what's happening in that book right now but it is a great cover regardless did you see there's like a variant of that cover with a different reflection yes i did yeah Yeah. and then i saw um also this week the trad Moore cover for that is awesome yes there's a lot of variants for that too Mm -hmm. Uh, my favorite cover (laughs) was uh, Venom number 19 by Kyle Hotz. I laugh because, you know, it's Donny Cates sort of again, isn't it? Yep. Uh, this cover is perfect for Halloween, I would say. It's scary. It's got basically Carnage puking on Venom in a sense. I don't know if he's puking, but there's like light coming out and he's just, like, just screaming and there's just like open maw of like wetness and teeth and everything. Mm-hmm. And his eyes are glowing so, so perfect. Venom is tiny, standing in front of this giant Carnage. If you've read uh, The Last Absolute Carnage, you know they're about to duel. So I don't actually know what's going to happen to this issue, obviously. But uh, it definitely sets up the fact that they are fighting each other. Yeah, I think more so than what I was saying about Silver Surfer, it feels like a cover that's very in sync with its narrative in a, in mm-hmm, a really cool, mm-hmm. teasery way. Yeah, you know, I want to get in the Halloween spirit. Let's do it. Okay. Where are the X-Men? only happens one month a year. What? <laughs> I said, where are the X-Men? I don't know. What do you mean? They take all the leaves off the trees to make them. Um, oh, I don't right. know if you know. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that last show. You guys, go back, figure this out. You can uh, puzzle out what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm leaving a Lost-style series of clues. Yes, yes. By the end, we'll know that we're all in purgatory. Even you, listener. <laughs> so in our last segment, we will be interviewing Joe Hill about Basketful of Heads Number 1, which comes out October 30th, as well as Hill House Comics and all the books that he's curating with other creators. It's a fun one, folks. Mm-hmm. Enjoy. So, on the show, we have Joe Hill, who has Basketful of Heads, number one, coming out October 30th. Thank you so much for being on the show, Joe. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I We got a chance to read the first issue a little early, and I'm not going to spoil anything that's not in the um, the free uh, preview that, that was released, but I have to say, Basketful of Heads opens on September 1983. Is that year and month significant to you or the story at all? Oh, that's a good question. Well... I think, creatively speaking, I kind of live between 1981 and 1985. Most of the formative art, you know, the books that I read, the films that I saw, the stories that shaped how I think about story came out in the mid to, you know, the early to mid 80s. So stuff like E.T., Mm-hmm. Rages of the Lost Ark. You've got Jaws. That's that's earlier. That's seventies, but still kind of in the same time frame. I read a lot of my dad. Sure, you know, I read a lot of my dad's big eighties books. So, so I would say a lot of the stuff that shaped my imagination came out in that time period. And I sometimes think a lot of my stories have that kind of eighties sheen on them. 
a kind of faint odor of the 1980s. I don't know what that smells like, polyester probably. <laughs> shag Musty. Carpet. Yeah, shag carpet. You know, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, those were storytellers that really you know, created my whole idea of how do you do this? How do you, how do you play professional make-believe? Um, and then later, I think when you get into the 90s, the art that was really influencing me was the British Invasion comics. And there's a little flavor of that in Basketful of Heads as well. There is, there is, I will say this, there <laughs> is one functional, there are two functional reasons why the story is set when it's set. Yeah. And I'll admit to one of them. Oh, good. And the other one, I actually have to keep a secret because it's it figures it's wired into the uh, one of the mysteries of one mm. of the sort of mystery elements of the plot. Interesting. But one of the reasons I said it in the early 80s is because cell phones are a pain in the ass. I was going to ask. Yep. Yeah. You, you know, if you're writing thrillers. So Basketful of Heads is the story of a young woman named June Branch, who at the end of the summer goes to spend a weekend with her boyfriend, Liam, who is hired on as a summer cop in Brody Island, basically directing traffic. Liam and June wind up house-sitting for Chief Clausen, the head cop on the island. And Chief Clausen has all these Viking artifacts that he's very proud of. And on this very stormy evening when they're house-sitting, four home invaders turn up. June hides, and Liam is grabbed by them. And in the night that follows, June has to fight off these home invaders and somehow try to rescue Liam, all while figuring out what it is they really want. Because there's something more going on here than a simple smash and grab. And I wanted to put her in a situation where she was convincingly cut off from any assistance. And so because it's set on an island, the island, Brody Island, is connected to the mainland by a causeway. But there's a big summer storm, and so there's no crossing the causeway. It's flooded out. And the island has no power. And I just feel like, you know, you hand someone a cell phone, and suddenly that all that isolation is ruined. So you know, yeah. it's so possible to get a you know, signal to someone else. The other thing, though, is if you're constructing a mystery story— and your bad guys are carrying cell phones, you know, uh, those cell phones are tracking devices. Someone who can do electronic forensics can take your phone apart, and tell you where you've been and when you were there. So if you're trying to construct a plausible mystery, uh, you know, nothing can undermine it, undermine your plot faster uh, than a modern smartphone. <laughs> I have to fully admit, I, I asked this question because I was born September 1983, and I just thought maybe you were tapping into... That was into... the other reason I said yes. it. That was the other uh, reason Spoilers, I spoilers. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to get into it, but now that, you, now that you've raised it. Ah, shoot. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in terms of place setting and tone setting, and certainly like you're talking about the physical geography and also technological geography of the time and stuff, but it seems like there's also a lot imbued in the characters um, I noticed like a lot of storytelling is through facial expression or through where they are in the panel and stuff. How much detail in your script goes into detailing that stuff for the artist? When I first started writing comics, my the, the first comic, the first ongoing comic that I wrote was Lock and Key, um, mm -hmm. which I, you know, Gabriel Rodriguez and I spent seven years on Lock and Key. And in some ways, we're still not done yet. <clears throat> There's still a lot more story to tell set in that universe. When I started writing... I wrote these real Alan Moore type scripts. You know, I'd write like 60 or 70 pages for a 22 page comic. And gradually I've learned I don't need to do quite that much, but I still tend to err on the side of overwriting. 
trying to make sure that the artist, you know, knows what I feel like we need to emotionally deliver in each panel. And I've had the good fortune to work with artists, you know, who not just can draw action, you know, or can draw settings beautifully, but who are really good at characterization, um, really good at, at revealing a person's emotional inner landscape through their expressions, their body language, you know, the way they stand, sorts of gestures they make. I was thinking there's this one sequence in the first issue where June and her lover are having an uncomfortable conversation and her bare feet are up on the dash. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are like the most expressive bare feet you've ever seen in comics. (laughs) And that's what you want. You want to an artist who's so good and so psychologically intuitive that even, you know, even bare feet are helping to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, comics are full of people who can draw, you know, mind blowing anatomy, you know, like mm-hmm. anatomical draw with sort of like, you know, incredible anatomical exactitude. But I think what's really important is that the characters be expressive and lovable. I think it's more important in horror than maybe any other genre. Because if you don't love the characters, you won't you won't be scared when they're threatened. Right, that makes sense. I mean, good horror is almost always about empathy. Uh, it's, it's getting invested in a character and rooting for them and enjoying spending time with them. And then, you know, when the guy in the mask made out of human skin comes after <laughs> them with the chainsaw, right. you know, you're really rooting for him to make, you know, to, to survive. I always feel like, I always feel like those slasher films of the eighties were terrible horror movies, but kind of successful at slapstick comedy. The reason being that you, the, like in a, you know, in a nightmare on Elm street, movie freddy is the most three-dimensional character in the story right all the the teenagers are just types you've got you know uh the jock the stoner the cheerleader the virgin yeah the and breakfast maybe, club. maybe <laughs> yeah maybe that's not completely fair to nightmare on elm street which was actually one of the better slasher franchises but you know what i'm talking about a lot of these a lot of these stories in the 80s would just set up characters to be ten pins to be knocked down by the bowling ball of the serial killer and i think good horror requires you to invest and believe in the characters a little more deeply you know adding to the richness of these characters which i totally think they are right off the bat there's also like a richness of detail for instance like the american flag that's covering the heads uh in the first page <laughs> and then characters seem to be weaving in little bitty details for you to like have in the back of your head stored for later yeah is there an art to this do you go do you have to like do a rewrite to add that kind of layer or does it come to you ri- like right off the bat I do think I do try to stay not just ahead of the artist, but well ahead of the artist. I want to be I always want to be two or three issues out in front of whatever is getting drawn, because a lot of times you discover, oh, it would be really convenient if there was a pair of binoculars on the desk in issue four, because Mm -hmm. someone's going to need those binoculars in issue six. And it's just kind of convenient for them to pull them out of thin air. So if a character, if something is going to come into play, if a weapon is going to come into play, if someone needs a piece of information, I definitely want to try to get that up front as opposed to just sort of conveniently sticking it in, um, you know, when it, you know, when, when it comes up. So yeah, stuff like the American flag and everything, you know, I know where that flag came from. Mm. Um, you'll be seeing that flag, 
you know, further on down, further on downstream. You try to, when you set something up, it, it tends to work backwards. So I'm, when I set something up, it's because I'm, I know I'll need, need it later because I've already written that script. I feel like readers and moviegoers, we've all been trained really well to pick up on little details like this, especially with horror, because we're trying to figure it out, puzzle yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was one of the sort of the joys of the first issue for me. It was just like, oh, oh my God, remember that later. <laughs> right, exactly. I love that. You know, I think the reader enjoys catching the subtle details that will matter later. It's it's the puzzle-like aspect of stories. Speaking of, you know, detail and richness, I guess, to kind of summarize all that, there's a good mix of like, wholesome summertime Americana in the first issue that kind of gives way to this seedy, gross underbelly. <laughs> How did you go about crafting the tone and do you explore similar balances across the other Hill House books? I know what you're asking is how did I imagine my way into an open-hearted, sunny uh, American <laughs> uh, moment when it's so much easier for me to imagine a seedy, gross underbelly to everyday life. Right. <laughs> well, obviously See, the concept for the book started with the seedy gross underbelly right right, you had right. To dream up the happiness yeah yeah well I, I mean again i think you know there's a couple things there one is that horror succeeds partially by contrasts so you have to have the sunlight to make the darkness satisfyingly dark if all you've got is darkness that can be kind of exhausting and ultimately maybe a little tedious yeah so wait though but there was a larger question there i feel like i fogged out on the larger question <laughs> How do you go about crafting the tone and do you explore similar tones or dichotomies across other Hill House books? I mean, I do think that the comics each. So my idea for Hill House was basically Blumhouse for comics. You know, I've looked at the Blumhouse machine with mm. great admiration. What you have here is a studio that's produced intelligent, character driven, emotionally satisfying and really well composed horror films. And they're turning them out two or three a year. You know, you're getting films like The Purge and Oculus and Conjuring and the whole Conjuring franchise and even films like Whiplash, which I would argue is sort of the best of the Blumhouse horror films, except maybe for Get Out. You know, and I wanted to do that for comics. And so fundamentally, the goal is that each Hill House comic should, you know, the plot should be great high concept horror. A, a, you know, each story should have a big fat hook that a reader can latch into. And then you want to deliver a horror story with a beginning, middle, and an ending that's, you know, all killer and no filler. Um, so the primary goal is that each comic should work on its own as a standalone story. That said, they probably all do take place in the same universe. Um, there are connective threads. And I think as you read each title and as they go along, those connective threads become more and more apparent. There are connective threads between the titles that help create this sense that they're all taking place in the same world. There are aesthetic similarities, similarities in terms of color palette, kind of muted noir color palette. You know, I think when people think horror, they think the two colors that we associate with horror is like black and red. And I think the color palette of the Hill House titles is kind of more like a bowl of cream with a single drop of blood in it. Mm -hmm. Cream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, or actually ask, is this part of a multiverse outside of the books, even these comics also say Nosferatu or, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, 
I guess I hear what you're saying. You're probably thinking about the prison that the prisoners came from. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this, you know, because initially, so there's like, there are like connections in a way between some of my books and some of my dad's books that initially started as jokes. (laughs) The, The most, the biggest one is, so I wrote this book, Nosferatu which was made into a TV series on AMC and everyone should go watch it. I, I wrote this novel Nosferatu about a man who has a car that runs on human souls instead of gasoline. This guy, Charlie Manx, you know, he's been driving the American roads for like almost a century and he gets kids into his car and he slowly drains their souls away. And that's how he stayed alive for so long. And so he's a vampire, but he's a vampire that drinks spirits instead of blood. And when I was working on that book, my dad was working on a book called Dr. Sleep which is going to be a film that everyone should go see pretty <laughs> yep. soon. So, so, uh, so, catch up. so you want to warm up this Halloween. You want to warm up for <laughs> Dr. Sleep by watching the entire first season in Nosferatu gotcha. and your Halloween will be all sorted out. But so Dr. Sleep is also concerned, um, a gang of vampires that drain human souls instead of blood. And when I realized what, my dad was working on and he realized what I was working on, you know, we both became aware that there was this basic underlying similarity between our novels. And so the question then was, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. And you have two choices when you're presented with something like that. You can run from it and try to obscure the differences or you can embrace it. And I always think it's more interesting to sort of embrace those echoes. So I stuck my dad's soul vampires in Nosferatu. There's a passing mention of the true not, which is, which are the bad guys in Dr. Sleep. And he stuck Charlie Manx in Dr. Sleep. And at the time I thought it was just a joke, <laughs> but I, I admit that gradually I've started to think in a way that maybe, maybe my, maybe a bunch of my stories kind of do take place in conjunction with my dad's stories you know, I mean, it's sort of like part of my imaginary furniture, hmm. um, you know, my whole sort of, you know, if if, uh, you know, if my imagination could be compared to a house, then I would say it's furnished with a lot of stuff, you know, that was purchased uh, uh, cheap at the uh, Stephen King yard sale. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember reading both those books around the same time and thinking, oh, my God, there's this connection, but no one's talking about it. <laughs> yeah, well, so The Fireman, uh, my fourth novel, also has some echoes in the stand. And there I was very overt with it. And what I decided, so my dad has this this it, it, series of books about this guy, the gunslinger, and right, his right. quest to reach the Dark Tower. And the idea of those books is that the Dark Tower is the axis the the central connecting point for all these different universes that there's a multitude of universes but they all join at the tower and my idea about the fireman is that that story takes place one level up on the tower from the universe um, mm. that was the setting for the stand nice so they're just the two the two worlds are just separated by the thinnest of membranes and there are all these echoes from the stand that play out in the fireman because they're both plague novels. They're just about different kinds of plagues. Right. right. One is, you know, yeah. his, his, the stand is about the super flu and the fireman is about a plague of spontaneous combustion. How important are your surroundings to you when you write? Can you tell us about the music or movies or certainly your dad's books, obviously that inspired the tone or the visuals of the line and basketball so, in particular. So I tend to write longhand for my first drafts. 
And most of Basket Full of Heads was written longhand. And I used these Lextrum 1917 notebooks. I like them because it's pretty, pretty thick, pretty thick, well-made paper. And so you can write with a fountain pen and the ink doesn't bleed through. And, you know, I have, I have uh, an office that I work in. It's got framed book covers in it, but not my book covers. I read this thing about M. Night Shyamalan. And about how he has in his office, he has framed posters from all these movies that inspired him. Hmm. So he's got like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, stuff like that up in his office. And I thought, that's a great idea. I should get framed book covers that, and you know, the frame covers of books that are sort of keystone stories for me and hang those up in the office. So I've got... Um, right behind my desk, I've got Richard, the cover for Richard Adams' Watership Down, and I've got Charles Portis' True Grit, and the cover for The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoot by David Mitchell. Are you literally sitting there now? <laughs> yeah, I'm right. I'm, 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 <laughs> I can I'm hear you looking line. up behind yourself. <laughs> yeah, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a pile of toys in the corner, too, uh, like I'm basically still nine years old. I've got uh, the reaction Great White Shark Jaws action figure. And directly above it, I have the yellow submarine, the Beatles, uh, my yellow submarine logo. Nice. So, but the truth is, is that I, I travel a lot. My wife is an English woman. And so I live part of the year in America and part of the year over there. And both of us have to travel for work a lot. And we always try to arrange it so that we can travel together. So I do a lot of writing in hotel rooms as well. And I mean, Basket Full of Heads was written in, in New Hampshire and outside of London, and in LA, and in Toronto, and wherever I happen to be, you can't be you can't be too obsessed with having everything just right, you know, with only being able to work in one space with you know your favorite cup of tea, and it has to be at the same hour every day. That's a recipe to only write like a hundred days out of the year. <laughs> right, right. Well, with Hill House Comics, you know, kicking off really soon, you know, your next kind of grand work i would say do you ever think about which of your books or which of your comics will last in the public consciousness um i don't know that that's such a good thing to worry about you, know? <laughs> you sort of gotta you know you sort of gotta write for now and hopefully if the stories are good yeah they'll hang around they'll have a little bit of a a little bit of a shelf life you know asking what people will make of a comic book or a novel 10 years from now that reminds me, not too long ago, someone asked, what do you think the future of streaming TV will look like in 10 years? Mm. And I said, I don't think it would exist at all. You know, we'll all be out like the shattered ruins of our <laughs> former civilization. Yeah. You know, we'll be fighting over the last can of beans and trying to open canned goods with like sharp rock and and hiding from the slow mutants at night. You know, it won't be safe to go out at dark anymore. And I kind of went off into this rhapsody about what it would be like in 10 years. And then when I got done, the guy just looked sort of depressed. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I said you know, it's funny. My friend just the other day was asking me, when will virtual um, like virtual reality headsets become a thing and i was like well when the nuclear holocaust comes it'll be the only way to experience the real world anymore <laughs> right right well we're all living in caves when you want to see sunlight and, yeah and, and yeah. grass you'll have to throw on your virtual reality headset you know i guess i guess virtual reality probably isn't really going to be a thing anytime soon is it 
You yeah. know, because like we had Ready Player One, yeah, and it's pretty clear that like like you know people generally are not going to be satisfied to throw on like a wetsuit and you know a fishbowl on their head and run on place in a treadmill to experience life. That's just people would just rather just hold a controller. That's true. Yeah. It's so much you easier. Know, it's just easier. Yeah. It's just easier. And it's like, I mean, like, how would you even wash the big rubber wetsuit? <laughs> it would just smell really, really bad. I kept thinking right? that when I was reading like, the book. So, and it's not like you can loan it to a friend. Like, oh, hey, man, it's your turn in the game. Yeah, I mean, no thanks. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to split the dry cleaner's cost? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I got, I sorry, I started thinking about VR juices. It really <laughs> sidetracked me. Yeah. Um, do you want to play a little bit of word association with us? Sure. Right. Is this like so, in James Bond when they showed him the Rosarts test or something? Or there's something like uh, they, they're sitting there with Daniel Craig and they're like, you know, they say one word. He says one word to reply. So they're like mother. And he says gun. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. Except there and is a right like, answer. Child, he says gun. <laughs> <laughs> Martini. Uh, gun. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And yeah. we're judging you very silently. Okay. Yeah. Let's go for it. <laughs> um, let's go with the dollhouse family from Mike Carey and Peter Gross. Right. Yeah, so you want me to describe it in one word? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes, if you could. If you could, Ooh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to describe it in one word. I'm going to describe it in three. Intelligent British horror. Nice. Okay. Specifically, specifically, a certain kind of horror film that came out in the early 70s that had, you know, that was authentically scary, but also had intelligent talk in it and sort of trippy underlying ideas. Stuff like The Wicker Man. Mm. Oh, yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, next up, The Low Low Woods by Carmen Machado and Donnie. All right, well, again, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm not really good at this answer <laughs> with one word. But basically, it's like the perfect mix of David's because it's sort of 50% David Cronenberg and 50% David Lynch. Oh. Oh, my God. So, now I, we have to read yeah, that. We're both so Lynchian it's, fans. It's like if, uh, if Twin Peaks was the setting for a David Cronenberg horror film. Ooh. Okay. Awesome. So uh, it's got, I mean, it's great. It's got these two lead female characters who are tough and intelligent and caring in the town of Shudder to Think, Pennsylvania. And it's this former mining town that's really run down. And they're, they're, packs of skinless men wandering out in the woods. It's terrifically weird and upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait now. <laughs> Tell us about Daphne Byrne by Laura Marks and Kelly Jones. Daphne Byrne is kind of like a 19th century feminist omen. It's like the these omen are strong. These are pitch strong, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like you know um, a kind of feminist, you know, uh, ghosts and gaslight uh, take on you know um, uh, the child born to end us all. Awesome. Okay, and the last one, Plunge by you and, oh my God, I cannot believe you got Stuart Amonin on this. I can't wait. I, I can't believe it either. I'm still having, <laughs> I'm still having trouble. And I gotta say, so I'm talking to Mark Doyle, former editor of Vertigo, and, and he's, you know, he's co-show running um, Hill House with me. Yeah. And I'm talking to Mark and he's like, what are you thinking about for the art uh, for Plunge? And I was thinking, I don't know, can we find someone who, who can kind of draw like Stuart Immerman? And, <laughs> and Mark is silent for a moment and says, I definitely think I can find someone who can draw kind of like Stuart <laughs> Wow, he nailed it. <laughs> yeah, and he really did. And he really did. And the pages are the pages are coming in and they're so good they make me want to cry. Um Plunge is like uh Plunge is like basically my riff on John Carpenter's the thing. It's it's, you know, 
Arctic horror with a kind of Lovecraftian bent. Nice. And finally, Basketful of Heads. One word? One word. I feel like I, I feel like I should have one of these Tales from the Crypt pun, puns here, right? <laughs> you know, um, um, something like, uh, it'll it'll knock your head off. Oh, jeez. Oh, that's, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not good. No, let's not. Let's not pretend that was even a little good. Um, you know, I think the goal with Basketful of Heads was to do something that felt, you know, uh, fun, gross, over the top, and scary in the way of like, you know, Cabin in the Woods. Nice. Right. Which I think it does. Oh, thanks. Well, Joe, I think we're out of time, but A Basketful of Heads comes out October 30th. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Comics Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a blast. 